2: Hello and welcome to the game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. We are here every match day of the World Cup, podcasting after 10 o'clock UK time every night. It is match day nine and we are still yet to endure a goalless draw. This tournament continues to give and give. In the studio with me, making his World Cup debut, it's Alan Smith. Uh, Later on, we're going to be joined by Gab Marcotti in St. Petersburg, who witnessed Brazil's last gasp victory over Costa Rica, where VAR made history once again. Switzerland came from behind to beat Serbia in a hugely significant game on and off the pitch, and Nigeria kept their World Cup hopes alive with a crucial three points against Iceland. But first, it's 48 hours until the three Lions are back in action. So let's get an update from the England camp. Paul Joyce uh, is there for us. And Paul, Gareth Southgate has been talking up England's chances at this World Cup, hasn't he?
3: Yeah, he was very positive about them today. Um, Trying to put in context that that first performance against Tunisia and, and especially the first hour with what we've seen in the rest of the tournament. Obviously, the the sort of issues that, you know, Germany, Argentina um, have had, Spain, um, Brazil, France have not really got going. I think the only team, really, that, that the games that I've seen have been really impressed with has been Croatia so far. And really, Southgate was just saying that what England produced in that first hour against Tunisia, yeah, although he didn't take the chances, um, compared favourably with, with everybody else, which is quite a big and bold statement to make, really, after just one game. But I suppose he's just trying to build confidence around the squad. I'm surprised he said it, really, because then it invites pressure in, in some respects, but I think that's just a style of management to be sort of upbeat about everything. He's latched on to the way that we kept going and, and got the last minute goal with Harry Kane and was trying to create a sort of sense of momentum within the squad. And I would expect that to continue against Panama on, on, on Sunday. I don't think there'd be too many problems there.
2: As you say, it is Panama up next, though, for uh, England. And uh, Henry Winter has reported that Harry Maguire, uh, when he was speaking earlier on, he was talking about the physicality of Panama uh, and the fact that England expect a real battle on Sunday.
3: Yeah, I think one of the, the meetings that, that that Southgate has had with the players this week was a debrief to sort of outline that the message to the players was you, you're going to have to win the physical battle again um, with Panama and then your technique for... Prevail, but I I spoke to Jordan Henson this week and he was quite upbeat about that as well. He was quite sort of saying, well, we have have physical tests every week in the in the Premier League. This is a team. When you look at sort of Maguire and you know Loftus Cheek is probably going to be playing. The the not players who are going to back down. Kyle Walker's not going to back down. Ashley Young's not going to back down. So he 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 was more than confident, of sort of matching Panama's physical approach.
2: You've uh, already alluded to, to the change in the camp with Gareth Southgate now, now in charge. And, but there has been a bit of a love-in, hasn't there, between Southgate and the media thus far in this tournament. But uh, Southgate yeah. had something to get off his chest, didn't he, today? He wasn't happy with you lot, or us lot.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, obviously, he was referring to the photograph of Steve Holland's team sheet. And, and on the one hand, there's a few mixed messages from him saying he wasn't bothered by it and... It was just a team sheet, and it doesn't mean it's the team. And then in the next breath, he sort of said, "No, but the media has to decide whether it wants to help the England team," which has caused quite a bit of debate out here today in, in terms of the reaction on social media has been quite negative towards the newspapers and, and the websites that carried the story, and a lot of the lot of the reaction maybe from fans is that the newspapers are wrong, but I think. Where I would say is Gareth Southgate got it wrong is that the newspapers are out here covering England to be cheerleaders for the national team. We're out here to get stories, and the team always generates massive interest. Um, and if Steve Holland is going to walk out at an open training session with his, his team on show for everyone, then you know that's his mistake. And it's interesting that Kyle Walker was up today. He said that Steve. Steve Holland had got the squad together before training. He'd apologised for what he said was "quote messing up." We're not cheerleaders out here for England. We're to we're we're here to get to get stories and one of the debating points straight away after the Tunisia game was: should Raheem Sterling stay in the team? Or should it be Marcus Rashford? Are the England coaching staffers? have scribbled down a team which suggests that Marcus Rashford is playing not Nottingham Stale and that's a very good story and you know, we obviously have to reflect that out here and, you know, if, if people are going to turn around and say, well, England's chances against Panama, I think fifty fifth in the world, have been undermined because some newspapers published a photograph of a of an England coach with a with a team. It's it chimes for me with Garrett's overall message today which was England are as good as any team in the tournament. You can't have it both ways, would be my argument.
2: What about the mood then amongst yourselves, the rest of the journalists and England now after uh, what Gareth said earlier on today? Has anything changed or is it still that love in, that pally relationship that you've seemed to have all developed?
4: Yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't say it was
3: sort of too pally. I mean, what the FA have tried to do is, at Euro 2016, for example, the players had games in their hotel and we used to ask them what they were doing to pass the time because they were based in Chantilly and they couldn't really go out too much. So, so they were always in the games room and they, and they would never open up about what they did to pass the time of day. And they had a darts tournament and they would never speak about it. So what the FA have done is put a dartboard in the media centre in uh, rapino where, where we're based and one England player comes in and plays a member of the, the media travelling party. So... Jamie Varvey played darts, I think it was against. Uh, Carrie Brown is one of the female broadcasters mm-hmm. out here for being in sport. I think it's been a good move for the FA. Mm. But I just think things like the team sheet and, and things like that, if England were to um, suffer a bad result, I personally think that you know those so-called improved relations, it goes back to what it was, really.
2: Just before we finish, just want to ask, have you had a yeah. go yet on the dartboard against any England player? No,
3: no, I'm last pick. I'm <laughs> going to be last pick. I think, um, Maybe they're saving the best other. till last. No, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> out of the way. Of that. I don't want to get embarrassed by, by, by anybody. I think um, Jamie Vardy was good to stay because he stayed behind and a bit longer and he played pool with... Um, Danny Taylor from the Guardian, he got beat at that as well as losing the dark to carry. So he's not having a very good day today.
2: (laughs) Oh dear, I don't know if he's enjoying Russia right now then. Time now to get a guide on England's opponents on Sunday. Tom Clark is the assistant sports editor at The Times. He spoke to us last week with his tactical lowdown on Tunisia and he's done the same for Panama, which you can see at thetimes.co.uk. Tom, you did pretty well with your tactical analysis of uh, Tunisia. So how will Panama pose a different challenge for England?
1: Um, well, if it's, if it's possible, they will be even more defensive than uh, Tunisia were. Wow. Um, but they will do so with a very tenacious style. Uh, they picked up five yellow cards against Belgium in the opening group game, uh, which is one of the highest f- in the competition so far. Um, so they're not afraid of um, putting in a few rough challenges here and there. They certainly you know, will target England's forward players, try to stop them getting any space whatsoever. Um, and so it will be very similar to how we saw Tunisia play in the second half deep banks of defence quite hard to break down Um, and England will need a lot of energy, they'll need to play quick balls but thankfully I think England have shown signs that they're able to do that, we saw Harry Maguire John Stones, Kyle Walker playing really good quick passes out from the back and they'll need to do that again to break through Panama's first line of defence which is their forwards and their midfield who will sit in front of England's defenders and kind of say, well, come on, you know, break us us down if you can. Um, So that'll be important that they get the ball into the feet of Harry Kane and England's other forwards.
2: Why do you think Gareth Southgate then has, if what we've seen is true, opted Mm -hmm. for Marcus Rashford to face Panama?
1: I think Marcus Rashford obviously brings a lot of pace and he brings some unpredictability. I think perhaps Gareth Southgate's watched, um, if he's uh, like I have done, watched Panama's um, pre-tournament friendlies. They defended very well. Uh, in a lot of them apart from against Switzerland they lost 6-0 and what Switzerland did very well was that they moved the ball incredibly quickly they played one two-touch passes they were having their defenders and deep-lying midfielders play those incisive passes that we've just talked about into a front three or a front four and they were playing quick one-twos moving Panama's defence around and so what started out as a deep-lying back five was suddenly all over the place uh, and Switzerland were able to break through into those gaps and obviously that's something that the likes of Marcus Rashford can do very well, perhaps play a one-two with Harry Kane and break through into the space and use his pace to get away from the Panama defenders.
2: Oh, and what about Panama? Who's key for them?
1: Well, for me, their, um, their best player didn't start the first game. Gabriel Torres, yeah. a 29-year-old forward. He's um, very quick, good composure on the ball. Uh, they opted instead for Blaise Perez, who's a bit of a national hero back home, but he's a mm. 37-year-old forward and when you're defending so deep, one of the most important things you have to do when you get the ball is you know, maybe counter-attack and a 37-year-old is not as effective as a 29-year-old in my opinion. So I wonder whether they might go for him to add a bit more guile and a bit more threat going forward. They are a team that play as a collective unit. You know, They defend ferociously across the pitch. Um, it's a very draining way that they play as well physically. They're pressing all across the pitch which involves lots of short, sharp sprinting and things like that. So we saw that sometimes against Belgium, you know, they were playing long balls forward and maybe Perez was completely isolated. They might look to score from long throw ins, from free kicks and corners if they get them. But with the system, the way they set it up, it's just so difficult for them to score goals and to create chances, I think. The Game, World Cup Daily, from The Times, with Natalie Sawyer.
2: You can hear live commentary of all of Saturday's games on TalkSport, including Belgium taking on Tunisia at 1 o'clock, South Korea versus Mexico at 4, and the clash between Germany and Sweden live from 7 on TalkSport. Brazil won their first game of the tournament, but they left it late to secure the win over Costa Rica. Gab Marcotti joins us now. And and Gab, history was made in St. Petersburg. For the first time ever in a World Cup game, a penalty decision was rescinded by VAR. Uh, The referee Bjorn Kuypers gave a spot kick with 12 minutes to go for a tug on Neymar, but then having watched it again, decided not to give that penalty. Just explain what happened and what you saw.
4: Yeah, so it was uh, it was quite a remarkable uh, quite a remarkable sequence because uh, uh Neymar was in the box and uh, he was being defended by uh, a guy named Giancarlo Gonzalez and he did the thing where he fakes one way, cuts back the other other way and he cut so sharply and so well that Gonzalez clearly lost his balance and uh from where I was sitting, it looked like, you know, his arm his arm went out, um somehow touched uh, the front of Neymar's jersey. And then Neymar did that thing where he sort of arched his back and, uh, and, and fell backwards. And, you know, it's a typical thing that we see all the time when you know, defenders get that sort of quick shirt tug in where your natural instinct is to try to free yourself so you go back the other way and then they let go and then you fall backwards. Um, the problem was, <laughs> when you looked at the replay, you realize that, you know, he barely grazed him and and crucially he clearly didn't pull his shirt which is really the only way that Neymar could have had that that reaction so um VAR signaled to Kuyper's and says nah mate if you look at this you might come to the conclusion that you got this wrong and and Kuyper did just that and that uh, Neymar was furious ran after him up to be held back by Marcelo. but you know there's no escaping the, the all-seeing eye I, I, I thought this was pretty clear-cut and and I thought it was um, it was also really really significant too because how many times in the past have we seen you know a big country get sort of a marginal call going uh, their way against uh, a so-called minnow?
2: Quite, you're quite right. Um, he did receive some rough treatment. I'm sure Neymar would have expected it from from Costa Rica. Do, do you feel it was a very soft penalty at best? Anyway,
4: had it been awarded? Yeah, no, I, it wasn't a penalty at all. I mean, it was basically a dive, I thought. And I also thought that, you know, I think it, it wasn't the first time in the game that he went down sort of appealing foul. Um, I thought he could have been booked earlier, to be honest. And, you know, as far as Ruff is concerned, he was fouled four times compared to uh, the Switzerland game when he was fouled ten times. Um, I, I just think there's a lot of nerves going on with Neymar right now. He's obviously had a rough time. And you saw that at the at the final whistle where, you know, he sort of collapsed onto the pitch on his knees and, and, and was sort of sobbing and crying. And, um, you know, and then he, he addressed it later in a post on social media talking about how, you know, people talk but nobody knows what he's been through and uh, and, and these were tears of joy and relief and whatnot. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what's going on in that guy's head, but it's, uh, it's an unusual place to be, I think.
2: Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about Neymar in just a second. But just going back onto that uh, reversed VAR penalty, um, the referee, very brave of Bjorn Kuypers to admit he'd got it wrong.
4: Um, you know, this was one of the concerns, right, uh, in, in the past, because obviously the, um, the video assistant referee is a referee as well. And a lot of referees have egos and whatnot. But, you know, they're here for a reason. They've all been trained on it. And, you know, I, I, I think, and, and they're being given pretty technical things. I mean, in some ways, you know, people said it was a question of interpretation. I don't really see the interpretation because um, there wasn't a shot of Neymar. The only thing that could have made him fall like that, and, and you know this if you've officiated the game or even if you've just watched enough football, as much football as you and I have, Natalie. The only thing that could make you fall that way is, is sort of the, the, the tug release that we spoke about earlier. And, you know, when you look at the video and you realize it's not there, then, then it's pretty obvious uh, what happened. You know, he's trying to win the penalty.
2: Indeed. As I said in the introduction, they left it late, Brazil, to win. Uh, They got two goals uh, post 90 minutes. A stoppage time strike from Felipe Coutinho was what broke the deadlock, popping up in the right place at the right time. It's now two goals in two games at this World Cup for Coutinho. And if if Neymar's struggling for fitness, uh, we know he has had that ankle problem. Is Coutinho the one to step up?
4: Yeah, that's an interesting question because you know, um, Tita, the, the, the Brazil coach, would would absolutely hate that question, or rather, what he would say is that, no, 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 we're all about the team, we're all about the collective. He really buys into this, and um, you know that's why, for example, he doesn't have a captain, but he rotates the armband to his players. He wants everybody to have uh, responsibility, and you know the thing is, in the first half, Brazil were all. Collectively, really poor. I thought, um, uh, including Coutinho. Uh, what really changed the game, I thought, was halftime substitutions, or substitution at halftime, bringing on Douglas Costa in place of William, who was really, really struggling. Douglas Costa's pace, his acceleration, I thought, made all the difference. Later on, they brought in uh, um, Bobby Firmino, who was who was exceptional, and you know, it was his header that ended up setting up the, uh, um, the Coutinho goal. Um, and that, that really made a difference. And you know, he he said it's never really about one guy. You know, we're Brazil. We have we have tons of weapons. We have lots of guys, and who can come and, and, and change things around. So I I wouldn't really say it was about it was about Coutinho. I really think that you know, top to bottom, this squad is so talented. They can it can really hurt you so many ways. And uh, and as he put it, going back to Neymar. You know, he said it's up to us not to be dependent on Neymar, and uh, you know he's not carrying us now. We need to carry him, so to speak.
2: Well, as it is, Brazil have four points from their first two games, Gab, and if they were to win the group, they'll face the runners-up of Group F in the last sixteen, which could be Germany. So they might be better off finishing second.
4: Oh, but no, he was (laughs) asked the question. Brazil don't think that way in Germany Ha! <laughs> huh. sorry, how many World cups have you guys won? you know go back put your 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 socks on with your sandals please we're Brazil uh no look they're not uh I it may be bluster um but I think it's it's more likely it's the realization that you know you can't really think like that you can't really start calculating um mm-hmm. the reality is if you're Brazil, you know if you're gonna lose to Germany or anybody else, whether you do it in the round of sixteen. Or whether you know you do it in the semifinals or final makes no difference, right? I, they expect to go and to go and win the World Cup. Um, he was very clear on this. He says, you know, we always play to win, and we always believe we can beat whoever whoever comes up we, we come up against. And uh, and I think that's really the right attitude to have. And and by the way, obviously I know Germany lost to Mexico in the opener, but having watched the fair bit of Mexico, um, this is a team that can hit really high highs. But can also fall to really deep lows. So you know, I don't think it, I wouldn't take it for granted that Mexico is gonna win the group at this stage.
2: Fair enough, Gab. Just let us know where are you heading to next?
4: So I'm uh, I'm on my way back to Moscow and then uh, tomorrow it's Nizhny Novgorod to see England. Aha Panama.
2: Very good, very exciting. Maybe you'll bring us a little bit extra luck,
4: Gab. If you need luck to beat Panama <laughs> you guys are in serious trouble. I know I, I think you'll be I think you'll be just fine without my luck.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
2: Well, Alan Smith joins me now. And if you haven't heard our last podcast, we discuss an article Alan wrote for The Times previewing Serbia versus Switzerland and the tensions that exist between Serbia and the three Swiss players with Kosovan roots. And wouldn't you know it, two of those players, Jaka and Shakiri, secured a second half turnaround as Switzerland came from behind to beat Serbia in Group E. Uh, Alan, first of all. Welcome along. Thank you very much. Serbia, there. We're going to start with them first of all because they got off to the perfect start very early on. Uh, Alexander Mitrovic, who we had spoken about uh, in our last podcast, being involved in some pre match taunts, he struck first with a leaping header.
5: Yeah, I thought pattern in the first half, Serbia probably just shaded it. Um, the goal was sort of a classic Mitrovic goal in a way, where cross comes in from Dusan Talic, from the right and Mitrovic just attacks it. And I see most of the first half, it just seemed to be Serbian crosses reining in towards Mitrovic and he would just leap and if he wasn't getting the ball, he seemed to be getting one of the the, the Swiss centre-backs. Um felt like the Swiss probably deserved it. Um, towards the end, they were piling the pressure on and once Jacques has scored, but obviously spectacular goal from 25 yards yeah. if a team was going to win it was only going to be Switzerland I felt, because especially towards the last 10 minutes of pressure piled on piled on and obviously then um, Shakiri broke away and scored and remarkable celebrations afterwards.
2: Yeah we're going to talk about those celebrations in just a moment but it kind of was a tell of two halves for Switzerland because in that first half they just didn't really get going did they?
5: No they were they were quite slow starters if you think back to the Brazil game, they they started that game quite slowly as well, where they they sort of stepped off Brazil for the opening 20 minutes, half an hour. Brazil were sort of attacking then the left for, for much of that game. They really struggled, but they grew into the game. And as the second half of that game progressed as well, they were pressing a lot harder and actually ended up probably shading the final 20 minutes of that as well. So it's, it's an obvious pattern. Um, It's something that teams can clearly work on and figure out why they're starting slow and I mean, if you were to compare it to, say, Iceland earlier in the day where they've struggled late in games, they've started games really well, Switzerland have been the opposite. And if you're picking one, you're going to pick the Swiss approach, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You want to finish well, don't you? And as you say, it was uh, uh, Xhaka and uh, Shakiri that scored for Switzerland in the second half. And as you already alluded to, there were some interesting celebrations to describe him. Flapping birds with their hands—that's what they kind of look like. And obviously, with with the history that's involved between the uh, the nations, I think we could perhaps make out that's to do with the Albanian flag and the eagle. Would you say?
5: Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the first one was Xhaka uh, kind of raced off towards a corner, and initially appeared to be celebrating with Swiss fans, but then ran ahead. It, made this gesture with his hands, started shouting, apparently, Kosovo, 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 in the direction of Serbian fans. Um, you couldn't really see from the TV pictures if there was a reaction from Serbian fans or anything like that, but Xhaka really enjoyed it. And then Shakiri repeated the trick, um, took his shirt off. Obviously, he was incredibly jubilant, um, joined by Jaka, and also joined by Valon Barami, who was the the third um, Swiss player with, with Kosovo Kosovan roots. Um, really seemed to enjoy it. From what I can tell, obviously the Serbians were quite annoyed by <laughs> by the celebration. Um, people just online, Serbian fans, saying that you know we've been punished for so-called provoking teams previously. Obviously, there was the infamous drone game against Albania a couple of years back in a qualifier, and they're in there making the point that you know if we're being punished, these Swiss players should be punished for celebrating like this.
2: Before Shakiri's winner, do you think Serbia will feel aggrieved that they weren't awarded a penalty? It seemed as though Mitrovic was kind of sandwiched between Lichsteiner and Scher.
5: Was it the most obvious penalty of the World Cup so far um, and wasn't given? And the point that people have been making about v throughout the tournament is that it's for clear and obvious decisions. And he's been wrestled to the ground by two defenders, Sharon and Lichsteiner, who one kind of grabs him from behind, the other one grabs him from the front. There's no way he can possibly stay on his feet. Um, and I think the one thing that probably goes against Mitrovic is that he possibly has a reputation, um, for being a big player who can kind of you know he, he has this habit of getting in the face of defenders. And did that work against them? Possibly so, or you know, maybe the referee just didn't actually see the incident.
2: But surprising that VAR didn't then get involved.
5: Well, why not? Um, it, it was clear and obvious that he was being wrestled to the ground. There's you know, there's no way he could possibly have stayed on his feet with two defenders dragging him from, you know, one from the front and one from behind. It's just it's bizarre.
2: Well, at halftime, Serbia were set to qualify from Group E, but it has all changed now. Brazil and Switzerland are on four points. Serbia are on three. Costa Rica out with no points. And Group E concludes on Wednesday with Serbia playing Brazil in the Spartak Stadium in Moscow, while Switzerland play Costa Rica in Nizhny Novgorod.
1: The Game World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer.
2: Now We're going to be giving you a Times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast as provided by our very own Bill Edgar. Last time out, we asked you which Italian defender missed the finals of both the Champions League and World Cup in 1994 because of suspension. The answer was Alessandro Costacurta, who missed out on Milan's Champions League final victory and Italy's World Cup final defeat. Tough tough one for Alessandro Costa Curta. Now, our teaser today, in which year was the last case of two teams contesting a World Cup final having already met earlier in the same tournament? Tune in to our next podcast to find out the answer. Group D will go right down to the wire after Nigeria beat Iceland 2-0 with the Super Eagles coming into the game knowing a loss would have seen them bow out of the World Cup. Alan, quite remarkably, Nigeria's win came after a goalless first half in which the African side didn't register a single shot.
5: Yeah, they were, they were really, really poor. And I'm sure everyone would have noticed the huddle just before halftime, which, they all, which they'd also done in the, the game against Croatia um, last Saturday it seemed to work because they were a complete different team in the second half whatever happened. Um, I sort of felt like Iceland again, tired as the game progressed. It was apparently really, really warm there. And Nigeria's pace just completely ruined Iceland. You could see the way Moussa sped um, and Victor Moses, who obviously provided the assist for the first goal. They were just too quick.
2: Iceland just couldn't contain Moussa at all. There was nothing they could do about him.
5: You could almost say he's been Argentina's best player in the World Cup because obviously <laughs> the result has helped, helped Argentina's chances of progressing. But Moussa is quite an interesting player in that when he moved to the Premier League two years ago... He struggled for Leicester. He actually scored two Premier League goals um, during the season. Obviously sent on loan last year. But, I mean, if you're a Leicester fan, you must be wondering, why haven't we seen a player like this?
2: Hopes of them getting something out of the game came from a VAR penalty but that was blazed over, and not something you'd expect from the usually clinical Guilfi Sigurdsson. Well,
5: his run-up was quite unusual. It was quite a, a short run-up in comparison to to a lot of penalties, and he was leaning back quite a bit. And if you watch it back, he sort of he doesn't so much lose his footing, but he just seems almost off balance. Um, and I think that is, you know, the reason for for him skying the penalty, which I'm sure took probably landed beyond row Z. Um, yeah, completely uncharacteristic for a player, you know, from dead ball situations, obviously usually is incredibly clinical. Um, but in saying that, apart from the penalty, Iceland just didn't really look like getting back into the game. They looked, they looked spent. Um, I think possibly the Argentina game took a lot out of them and that, you know, they had to defend and obviously it requires so much more concentration when you don't have the ball. Against Nigeria, they were okay in the first half. There wasn't really anything to choose between between the two sides, but... The second half just looked completely off the pace in every department, I think.
2: Mm, they, they certainly wilted, didn't they? Um, group D is intriguingly poised, with all four teams still in with a chance of progressing. Argentina know they have to beat Nigeria on Tuesday to have any chance of qualifying, but they also have to hope Iceland do not beat the group leaders, Croatia. Uh, Alan, let's move on to Group G, England's group. Belgium facing Tunisia on Saturday afternoon. And uh, Roberto Martinez's side no a win. We'll see them through to the round of 16.
5: Yeah, actually, I thought Belgium were quite impressive against Panama. There was a lot made, and because they hadn't really broken Panama down early enough, and it wasn't until late on when, again, Panama's Panama's fitness probably told, and Belgium were just it it showed how superior they were. But I think they, I mean, they dominated that entire game. a lot of the players seem you know really bang on form the Kaku sort of he seemed to struggle a little bit earlier on against Panama but still ended up scoring two goals Hazard De Bruyne were kicked all over the place by Panama but sort of you know both produced amazing assists Dries Mertens obviously scored an amazing goal as well um and I mean you can only see a comfortable Belgian win tomorrow I don't think it was possibly lost after the England game not much was made about how poor Tunisia were um, their only shot and, shot and target was actually the penalty. Didn't really threaten England. Um, and yeah, I can only see a Belgian win there.
2: Mexico faced South Korea. The Mexicans, of course, stunned the World Cup with their victory over the holders Germany in their opening game. And after such an impressive win, they'll certainly want to prove that that wasn't a fluke.
5: Well, thinking back to that Germany game, they probably should have won that game by a wider margin than just a single goal. Because on the counter-attack, they, were, you know, they just flew past Germany who... Obviously, Germany had had their own issues defensively, pushing too many players up forward. But the space and the chances that Mexico created in that game, if their finishing was better, they could have won that three, possibly even even 4-0. Um, I think that is certainly something they can work on. Um, South Korea quite disappointing against Sweden Um, didn't really produce much they seemed to have strange patterns where they had possession in wide areas but for some reason were just reluctant to put the ball into the box Um, Son who obviously lined up on the left side of a a three man forward line seemed quite ineffective didn't really look like the player that we'd become used to seeing for Spurs this season Um, you'd imagine Mexico rolling on from from that Germany game that they would probably edge South Korea tomorrow I think
2: And Germany themselves are in action for the evening game against Sweden, looking to bounce back from that defeat. And the, I suppose you could say, uncharacteristic way that they kind of fell apart against Mexico.
5: Yeah, and the most interesting thing after that game was Mats Hummels coming out and effectively criticising the team and and the strategy by saying that everyone was pushing forward apart from me and Jerome Boateng, who's obviously his his centre-half partner. Um, And therefore they were then overloaded by Mexico they've been speaking since then saying we've worked on it, it won't happen again and we're not going to play a team that can counterattack like Mexico basically effectively got at us. Um, it should be a, a much different game because I don't think Sweden have that same pace that that Mexico were able to punish them with. Um, Sweden are very much sort of a resilient defensive team it's how they reached the World Cup by defending quite well against Italy in the playoffs um, didn't look to have that sort of cutting edge against South Korea missed a couple of really easy chances in the first half and obviously relied on a penalty to win that game Um, so I reckon Germany once they can kind of improve the shape keep their structure will be able to beat Sweden It's, it's more a case of if they go in front I can't imagine Sweden coming back into the game
2: Well that is it for now Many thanks to my guests today Alan Smith, Gab Marcotti, Paul Joyce and Tom Clark. Do subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. For a limited time only, it is just a pound a month for your first three months. Search The Times Sale for more information. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. And we'll be back on Saturday in the company of Matt Dickinson and Giles Smith. See you then.
5: The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11
0: and get on with your day.
4: Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.